uh, chapter 2. We'll be getting there in just a few minutes. Um, so, uh, Chris came running out of this morning when I was outside welcoming people to take a picture of me. And I thought it was because of my new jacket. No, it was apparently because I was holding a Tim Hortons cup. And those of you who know, I'm not a huge Tim Hortons fan. But it's got Starbucks in it. So we're okay. Everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, because I wouldn't, uh, I am, you know, I'm a citizen. I love Canada. I'm, I, I love my country. But not, not Tim Hortons. Not, not a huge fan. So Chris, I hope that you've posted it everywhere that you can. Okay, Joshua chapter 2. We are, uh, we're working through, uh, we're looking at a series called uh, Joshua and Conquering Your Jericho. Conquering Your Jericho. Jericho being the, the center, masterpiece, if you like, in, the, in, in Joshua that we heard last week. And if you didn't hear the message last week, we encourage you to go online and listen to that message uh, because it really frames the whole series and, and answers the question, why, why study Joshua? Joshua, and we identified that we all have walls in our lives that need conquering, and some of these walls have been there a long time, internal, external, and, and how does Joshua inform and, and help us as people, not just Christians, but as people, uh, to, to face these obstacles that we're all uh, we're sometimes often struggling with. And so that's what we jumped into last week. So we're going to just continue looking at Jericho, but we're looking at Joshua through the lens of Jericho. And so we're going to look at Joshua 2 in, in just a second. I think it's fair to say that we live in a whatever culture. Like, whatever. And what I mean by that is, it's, it's certainly a term that is used a lot. But it's, a, it's like, you know, whatever will be, will be. You know, let's just chill. It's, it's whatever. I don't really care. And it's an interesting term, and I think, it's, it, I think it actually sums up our culture really well, because the common, and if you're, if you're here this morning and, and you're not sure about Christianity, or you're struggling a little bit with it, or maybe you've been in church in the past and you're just coming back into church and so you've got big questions and you're a little bit skeptical, well, first of all, join the club because you would, you would struggle to find anybody more skeptical than me. I, I need evidence for pretty much anything and uh, and so this is a good morning to come because we're going to press into some things that if we're actually really honest with ourselves we would say yeah this is true for me even if you don't believe in the bible and, and my hope and prayer is that you'll be encouraged to look at the bible um, but this morning I just want to show you a statement in this whatever culture and uh, this this is a general common belief We've come from nothing, we're heading to nothing, and with whatever in between. You know, what, whatever. And that would be a typical atheist, especially, point of view. It's like, you know, we, the, the universe came from nothing, um, and uh, it was an accident, and, you know, that everything's just kind of thrown together, and, we, and if you're interested in the science and all that kind of thing to do with creation, encourage you again to go on the website. There's a whole series called FAQ, and we really jump into science versus faith and, and the clues in, in the universe for the existence of God. But this would be a very typical, well, it's, the universe is an accident. Uh, we've come from nothing. There, there's nothing on the other side. It'll just be black, or it'll just be like it was when I was in, uh, before I was even my mum's womb. So whatever. It just doesn't matter. I'm just going to eat, drink, uh, and be merry for tomorrow we die, whatever. 
Or a similar view would be the agnostic view. It's the, uh, we come from nothing. We're heading to something, just not sure what it is, but whatever. And you still kind of land in, in the same place. I've just watched a documentary uh, with, you know, easily the most successful investor, period, certainly of our time, Warren Buffett, and he's a well-known uh, agnostic. And at the end of this documentary, he pretty much says this. You know, I don't know what's on the other side. Uh, I guess we'll see. And I thought it was really interesting because the whole documentary was about how this man had, uh, I mean, people would say a genius mind who was able to analyze uh, stocks and companies and, and able to make decisions about what he saw. He lived his life in the absolute opposite of we'll see. And yet when it comes to the most important thing, oh, whatever, we'll see. And it was like, that's really odd to me. It's really odd to me that, that this is thought, that we're accidents, that we're going nowhere, that, and we just kind of hold on and, and hope for the best. So here's, here's a statement that I want you to consider, even if you're not sure about the Bible. And as Christians, I want you to be encouraged when you, when you think about this. You know, maybe you're struggling in your faith, or maybe that you're, you're just not sure. The reality is, I believe, honestly, deep down in human nature, and some great minds and philosophers have written about this a lot, not necessarily Christian ones, I believe totally, deep down, we have something in common, and that is this, we don't actually believe this to be true. Like, if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't think that there's whatever and that there's nothing that deep down inside, like I said last week, we actually believe, the scripture says there's eternity in our heart. We actually believe that there is something. There is something more. There is something more significant than the big whatever in between life and death. There is. And, and I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we try and we know this to be fact, but we, we tend to push it out of our mind because we don't want to actually consider the consequences. We don't want to think about what that might mean for us. I just think we sense that this isn't true, that we're part of something bigger and better and more planned. So we're going to study Rahab in a second, and and we're going to look at how God used Rahab as part of a big plan. Because Rahab was a prostitute in Joshua chapter 2, and and she's used and actually mentioned later on in Hebrews. and, And nobody would look at her as anything significant at all. She was part of a plan. And here's what I want you to know. If, if, if you could go away with anything this morning, is that God loves to use imperfect people in a perfect plan. Look at this scripture. This is from the message. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He'd settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Now, just so you understand, he's talking about Christians here, people who believe in Jesus, people who have submitted to Jesus claim to, for him to be Lord of their lives, that it's not just a, oh yeah, I go to church, or yeah, I'm a Christian because I was born in a Christian country. This is, this is actually somebody who has had a transformational change through Jesus Christ. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Wow, what a beautiful phrase. But I've highlighted something that our culture struggles with. The idea that God has a plan. 
The idea that, that, that God has this overarching plan and he is in control. And we struggle with it because we want to be in control. We like the idea of us being in control of everything. That, and, but the reality is, is that life itself reminds us that we're not. And I've said this many, many times. It takes one phone call to remind us that we're very small. It's one phone call from a doctor, one phone call from a police officer, one event that happens in your life that is completely out of your control to remind you that actually, no, I'm not in control. But we keep feeding this belief into our children's lives, into our minds, that it's all down to you and your choices and your decision. And, 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 and it just doesn't work. You can eat as much broccoli as you want, kale, like furry lettuce. I mean, why? But you can eat all that and still get sick. And still find out that you're not in control. We don't like this idea because we want to be in control. We'd rather have it that we place our hope in things and belief and trust in things that we believe we have control over. And we teach our children that too. So maybe you put your hope in your parents, your, your spouse, your, your, the relationship that you haven't got. If I could just find that relationship, then I will find out what that more is. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's the government. Maybe it's your teacher. Maybe it's your degree. Maybe it's your fitness and health. We, we pile all our attention on this, believing that this is our answer, only to find out that actually we're not in control. So here's, here's what I want to... Here's what I want to show you this morning, that actually the greatest freedom that you can find as a human being is to, be, is to recognize that not being in control of your life is freeing. To have a God who's in control is far more freeing and joy-filled and purposeful than believing the con that we are in control of every aspect of our life. It's a far more freeing place to be. So right now, I want you to think of maybe events that have happened in your life that you felt out of control. And you're trying to grasp that. Only to be constantly reminded, no, there's nothing you can do here. What do you do outside of belief in God who is in control? What do you do in that moment? I've told the story before of uh, Sarah, especially his love of, of roller coasters. And, you know, and I... And I and I enjoy roller coasters, but nowhere near as much as my wife. And she, she, it's just fantastic going on a roller coaster with her because she lets everybody know around her how much she's enjoying it as well. It's just full on scream. It's like, oh, can you, can you hear that? Like from Six Flags, you'd hear it from here. Um, it's, and she loves roller coasters. We went on this one particular roller coaster, and I've told this story before called The Oblivion, the one where you drop like vertically into Like just the name itself. Let's go on The Oblivion. Hmm. Is there another one maybe involving Dumbo? You can sit in it and just go around. But the oblivion is like this vertical drop into what looks like a hole a size like this big that's black and smoke and blood and body parts coming out of it. And, and you're looking down and then they hold you just before they let you go. The whole thing lasts seven seconds. You, you pull one G less than it would be before you start passing out. And this is fun. This is great. This is awesome. Yeah, let's, let's do that, Sarah. And so they drop you and you go into the hole. And, and the thing is, is that I became aware when we were in this, and I know this happens on every roller coaster, that there's some people who go onto a roller coaster like this, and there's some people who go into a roller coaster like this. I want just to have a little guess as to which one you think I am. I'm like white knuckling this thing. I mean, this is, this, just as an aside, while they're fitting you in, in Alton Towers in, in the UK, while they were fitting us in, every time you breathe in, the thing gets tighter. 
right? So you're like, okay. And then the best part of the whole ride was this spotty 16-year-old kid comes over, spotty acne, comes over with a Ziploc and a Sharpie. I've told you this before. And I'm looking at him going, okay, I was worried before. I'm worried now. And he went like this. He said, uh, has anybody got any braces, like teeth braces that you take out? And like one kid along with yeah, I got on, and he took it out. Like that. And he put it into a Ziploc bag. They zipped it and put his name on it for him to collect at the end. I'm like, get me off this freaking thing. This is like the worst possible scenario for me. And sure enough, at the end, the kid goes and gets his, his retainer and sticks it back in and life is good again. But I'm white-knuckling this thing. I'm white-knuckling. Now, I could do this because I can trust the thing that's holding me or I can white-knuckle it. And that's what we do in life. If we really believe that we're in complete control, we haven't got this harness. We're just holding on. Whereas Christianity says this, look, I, I got you. I've got you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. What a beautiful promise that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. That He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's trustworthy in all His promises, the Bible says. That I as a Christian am able to hold on to that. That I can be reliant that even though my whole life might be falling apart, and trust me, there have been times when it has felt that. And, and I know having been pastoring in this church long enough that you have experienced that. To try and white-knuckle your way through that adds to the stress itself, increases the anxiety, and yet to walk alongside people who seem to have a faith and trust in the God that holds them, that you can lean into, I actually don't know how you do life without it. I don't know how you do life without it. What I do know is there's a billion dollar industries to try and tell you how to do life about it. The self-help industry and, you know, go and do this and maybe work out more. It doesn't put you in control. It doesn't. Because the scripture says in Acts chapter 17 verse 26 that he sets the boundaries of his people and nations and determines their appointed times in history. Now, you can read that and panic because, hang on, does that mean that God determines how long I live? Well, that's what the scripture says. Does he determine where I live? That's what the scripture says. He determines what I do. Yeah. Now you can go, oh, I don't like that. Or you can lean into it and go, that is so freeing. That is so freeing. That I don't have to worry. That I'm in Kelowna in 2019 because God has decided for me to be there. That I'm going to be pastor of this church because he has decided that I'm being pastor of this church. That you go to your university, you go to your school, you go to your workplace, you go to your business. You're sitting having coffee, whatever it might be. That God has determined and planned that he wants you there. That is freeing. Because I'm just not smart enough to figure out my own life. That's the truth of it. See, his, his word says that he designed you and that he delights in using you in this dramatic plan. And it's an adventure. You see, we often talk about Christianity as being something that, oh man, if you can just if you, it, it kind of escape the world, it can be a little bit boring. The world's really exciting, but come and be a Christian and live a nice, quiet, boring life. No, I can tell you. You start listening to God and following through with the commands of God, you're going to live an adventurous, dramatic life. 
And it's planned. It's freeing. It's freeing. If you think about Paul, he's in prison. And he's, 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 you know, he's, he talks all through his writing about how he's, he's been stoned and, and he's been, uh, uh, he's been um, tortured, he's been bitten, he's been shipwrecked. He's like, and he says, look, he says, you know what, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You let me live, it's Jesus. You let me die, I get to be with Jesus. That's freeing. That's freeing. And if God decides that that is a short life, that's freeing. That's freeing. And it includes your imperfections. He's not waiting for a perfect version of you in order to use you. He wants to use you now. So especially young adults get caught up with this. They think that once I get to be this thing, or this place, or this job, or this degree, then I can start actually living the life that God has called me to. And that's the wrong way around. No, God has called you as a 13-year-old, 16, 18, 19, 24, whatever it might be. God has called you and positioned you specifically to be the type of person that goes into the world and shows him and has purpose and fulfillment where you are. That is freeing. And if we can just teach our children, parents, teach your kids that they will... This is so countercultural. this is going to make some of your skin crawl, that they're not smart enough. What? My child? the most creative, beautiful, talented, gifted. Yeah, he's six months. Yeah, he is. He's great. Look, he just spewed right there. That's, that's amazing. You go, wow, this pastor doesn't like kids. No, I like kids. I've got four of them. But I, I, I also understand that they're not smart enough, good-looking enough, sorry, um, athletic enough, creative enough to actually navigate this life unscathed but teach them that they are in there's a God who's in control and even when things seem to be devastating collapsing around them it's gonna hurt it is hard you'll be disappointed you may weep but he is in control wow I actually think it's the outside of salvation itself is one of the most important things you can teach your kids Christians that they are not in control he is it's it's powerful and even though they might have imperfections, and none of my kids got imperfections, obviously. But even though they might have imperfections, and, and they've got different... God wants to use your experiences and your passions and, and, and your strengths and your struggles. Because that is his, that's his MO. That's what he does. That's what he loves to do. Listen to this. Look at his track history. Rahab, we're going to look at in just a second, was a prostitute. Joshua was a, sorry, Jacob was a cheater. Joseph was full of pride. Peter was, had a temper. <clears throat> David had an affair. Noah was a drunk. Jonah ran away from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossip. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. The donkey was a donkey. Moses stuttered. Abraham was old. And Lazarus was dead. Talk about God using imperfections. You might go, look, I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. Lazarus was dead. Yeah, but you're still better than me. Wow. We need to have coffee. God loves to use imperfections. Why? Because he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Teach, parents, teach your kids that. God knows. 
So when university somehow doesn't work out for them, or the job doesn't work out for them, or, or even you apply it to your own life, that you go, you weep with them, and you say, look, well, there's things that we need to learn. There was mistakes you made, or we should have done this, but his ways are higher than our ways. Be encouraged. That is building strength into the next generation. But it's countercultural because our culture tells us, no, it's all down to you, your power, your strength. You do this, you be that. You can be anything you want to be. And then suddenly they'll find out that's not true. And then what? And then what? See, God chooses the foolish. I love this scripture because I apply this to my life so much. God chooses the foolish things of the world, amen, to shame the wise. That was just me saying amen. I noticed that. Uh, God chose the weak things of the world. Amen. To uh, shame the strong. He delights to use that list of people in ways because it gives him glory. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. So your whatever turns into a divine destiny. I'd much rather live with a divine destiny with a God in control. He designed you and then he delights in using you in his dramatic plan. So that was my introduction. <clears throat> well, we've got lots of time. No, I'll be quick. Joshua chapter 2. You'll see why I introduced it like this, because we're going to jump into the world of Rahab just for a few minutes, because on the outside, her life is derided and it is useless. She does not fulfill this. There is no delight in her life. You only need to look at history as to how history looked at people who sold their bodies, and, and, and it, it's, it's not good now. Way worse then. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. I should have got somebody else to read this. Go look over the land, he said. Especially Jericho. Sorry, mum. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes. Whoa, hi. Ooh, Rahab's a liar. Yeah, and God's never used you, right? Let's, put all, let's have all the liars put their hands in the air. Okay, now we know who really is lying. Okay, so we'll get, we really get caught up about this. Well, Rahab was a liar. How, how did God use that? Man, I mean, there's, there's some of us can barely get through a week. But we would claim that God uses us. So let's, let's give Rahab a break. Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. It also shows us that God has an amazing ability to use sin in order to bring about his ends. He's not the origin, author of it, but he'll use. Because he says Jesus died at the hands of sinful men. And was it God's plan for Jesus to die? Yes. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax, and she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. What an amazing, amazing example of what I have just been talking about, how this lady, imperfect but perfectly placed, as part of a dramatic and perfect plan. Perfectly placed. 
that we believe, as Scripture says, that before the foundation of the world, God thought about Rahab and said, even in her imperfections, I'm going to use this lady so much so because I created her. It says in Psalm 139, I designed her, that, that I delight in her. So much so we're going to celebrate her later on as a hero of faith. And what did she do? As far as we know, she did one thing. And in our culture, we celebrate big and dramatic and legacy and fame and popularity. It could be that God has placed you on this planet for one thing. And that one thing might be a child. It might be a friend. It might be a co-worker. It might be somebody because of your influence and your ability and your faithfulness and your desire to share Jesus to them that you're going to talk to them and change the trajectory of their life for eternity so much so that they will then affect and possibly could be the next Billy Graham because of your one thing. Never belittle the small thing. Never belittle your space in life. God has planned your space in life. He doesn't make mistakes. I find this so encouraging. Perfectly placed for the Jericho plan because God had given them this dramatic promise that that past Jericho there was going to be promise, there was going to be freedom. See, I have delivered. Which tense is this? It's not a trick question. You've got three choices. Okay, should we do the liar thing again? Okay. Now, obviously, it's, it's, it's past tense. It's already done. Not, I will deliver Jericho. I have delivered Jericho. In God's mind, this plan's already complete. They're already in the promised land. You see, God, is, as, a, as a well-known preacher said, I love this time. I wish it was mine. He said, he said, look, God is not in love with a future version of you. He's not waiting because he sees you. He sees what you're like, like Jesus, and he loves every aspect of it. That when he looks at you and me as Christians, and for those of you who don't believe, then this doesn't apply to you. That when he looks at me and looks at those who are imperfect but believe in Jesus, he sees what happened on the cross. And he sees that Jesus' life and death, that that death was that sin and shame of mine placed on the cross. It dies forever, and then I'm giving his robe of righteousness is what God sees forever. So he already sees the promise fulfilled. Jericho's already sorted. Calm down. It's going to be fine. I'd rather white knuckle it. You know what? You've been li- you, you're born to live like this. Born to live like this. You see, I've already delivered. He gives some instructions. He says on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times. So they had to do something. They had to act upon the promise that they've been given, the belief in the plan, the belief in the divine God. They move, they act. So here's the big question that has been resonating through everything that I've been saying. Do you really believe that God is in control? Now, before you answer that mentally or in your journal, just think about how you live your life and whether or not it aligns with what you say and and. and try and do. So for example, we believe God is in control when we, when, we, when we pray. We believe, hopefully, that God will follow through with an answer and change life. We believe he's in control. Otherwise, we wouldn't pray. But then in our actual life, do we live life in such a way where we're grasping and trying to control all the time? That somehow deep inside, we don't believe that maybe God loves us enough to have a big plan for our life. That maybe he doesn't like me enough to 
or enjoy me enough or maybe he sees me like I think other people see me or worse how I see me and so he's making judgments based on that and actually his plan isn't the best for me because why would it because it just seems like everybody else's plan for me is awful so why would God be any different why 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 would he want to bless me because nobody else wants to bless me why would he want good for me? Because it seems like nobody else wants good for me. I'm not even sure whether I want good for me because I don't know whether I deserve it because of the things that I've done. Like if these things are rattling around in your mind, they're obstacles, they're walls that need conquering. Because God, past tense, read it again, I have delivered Jericho. For those that have been given the promise. So that's another big question. Do you live out that promise or is it just Christian by name? Or is it actually, no, I'd rather just figure out myself and see whether or not it's true or, you know what? It's risky because the whatever is not a good place to live. But Jesus says, the Bible says, if we come to him, we fix our attention upon him, that through him comes grace and love and faith and total life transformation. And I say every, pretty much every week, I, 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 if I was hearing me preach, I'd be like, man, I wish this guy would shut up, amen. And secondly, so I can get to the front and get some prayer... And give my life to Jesus. Because why wouldn't you want this? So do you believe that his often unconventional plan is better than yours? Do you obediently trust to the point like them that they actually get up and march? Here's what his instructions were. And they make no sense. This is what I love about God. God uses his perfect plan is often an unconventional plan. It is definitely countercultural. Because look what he was telling them to do. This is Joshua chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I, past tense, see, again, I have delivered, same verse, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Now remember, last year, with last week, we found out that these fighting men were actually giants. Now, historically, we know that people were generally smaller, so these giants may not be like literal, like, fee five fo fum kind of giants. These are... These, just were, these are big guys. And we know that there was two walls. Remember they like that in the diagram? Two walls in Jericho, 26 foot high. So these things would have been going through the people's minds. Giants, two walls. You better give us a good plan here, God. Okay, so here's the plan. March around, verse 3, around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. And they're thinking, that's brilliant. I'm with you, God. Keep going. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. So we've got walking. We've got the number six. We've got number seven. We've got the, the ark. And we've got the ultimate weapon, trumpets. For those parents who've actually had a child come home in grade six with a trumpet with a smile on their face telling you, Mum, Dad, I'm going to learn to play the drum, trumpet because my band teacher says they need a trumpeter and inside you're going, I'm going to see that band teacher later. I'll give him trumpet. Great, son, that's perfect. We know these trumpets are not weapons of mass destruction in a greater context. In a small family context they could be, but... When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Okay, shouting. Good. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everybody straight in. 
Now, we read these stories. We go, oh, cool. Like, let's put something on the wall for Sunday school. That's great. But think about you being one of those Israelites. Think about you being the leader, Joshua. This is the great plan of God. This plan, I say this reverently, this plan makes no sense. It's totally unconventional. But that's what God loves to do. What seems to be crazy for you right now, what seems to be chaotic for you right now, what seems to make no sense for you right now, that the Lord is asking you to trust Him in. Maybe it's just that you, I mean, marching around, that's a long haul. Maybe you've been in a long haul and you're just waiting for those walls to drop. You're waiting for the situation to change. You're waiting for an internal thing to change. You're waiting for an external thing to change. And God is asking you to do something out of obedience and faith. And then it says in Hebrews, and, and this is an uncomfortable verse, it says, they all died in faith, not having seen the promises, but saw them afar off. They never saw the fulfillment of the promise. But they believed because they saw it far off and lived like pilgrims in the land, the scripture says. So they lived like the promise had already been done. But they never actually saw that Hebrews chapter 11. Many of them never actually saw the fulfillment of the promise that God had given them. But they lived like it had already been done. What an amazing way to live. That if we could live in such a way that we believed that God was calling us. And we were part of a plan. And, and it might be an unconventional plan. And he uses imperfect people. But if we can live like that. And live like pilgrims in the land. Counterculturally. Then that is a freeing place to be. But it's also a place where you will live out promise. And show promise. And, and show people. People a better way to live through Jesus Christ. But how do we to sum this up? How do we get to that place where we can go, yes? I mean, Joshua was a smart guy. We know this by reading through his life story, through the beginning and before Joshua. He was a leader, he was a good guy, he'd been around the greatest leader that they'd seen at that time and, and is still looked upon as the greatest leader at that time, which is Moses. And, and it's so, but Josh was like, okay, let's do this. There's no, uh, God, I made a PowerPoint I'd like to show you and I think that I got a better strategy. I think my way's better. In fact, I think if I just stay in school and if I do this and if I get a great job and maybe if I change my car or maybe I get a better partner or if I could just get this or get that, I think that's a better plan. And God's going, no, 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 just trust me in this. Be faithful. Faithful to my word. Work hard at doing what is the yes in your life. So where did this come from? And this, friends, is where it gets a little challenging. Joshua had grown up in a generation of Israelites that every morning they got out of their tent and they looked to see what God was saying to them. And what I mean is this. is every morning they would get out of the tent and they would look up into the sky. And the scripture tells us that there was a cloud in the sky. And this cloud was a constant reminder of the presence and guidance of God and the promise of God. Constant. That I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am here. So every morning they would get out of, the bed, out of their tents and the first thing, I know this is what I'd be, I'd kind of, through squinty eyes I'd go as the cloud moved. Because the scripture says as soon as that cloud moved, they packed up their stuff and they moved on. And at night they had a pillar of fire. Now, I'm not going to say that God is going to give you a, a cloud and a pillar of fire. That would be cool. Please, iPhone, that would be wonderful to look at. But what I do know is every morning... 
with bleary eyes and sometimes tired and maybe a cup of coffee and a journal, we can crack open our Bibles and we can see what God is saying and how he's moving and how he's applying and changing and prompting and, and, and the Bible tends to read us every morning. Every morning, Joshua moved. Every morning, I should say, Joshua looked up. And as soon as it moved, he moved. His life was a life of yes. He took risks. He moved. He had faith. He was asked to do things that made no sense all the time. He was so used to God's unconventional plan that it just became a habitual thing. Yes, God, whatever you say, God, I will do that, God. It wasn't a, well, it's a... It's a no right now, Lord. But if you convince me, which you won't, but if you did, then I might do that. If the Archangel Gabriel comes down and writes something on my wall, then I might squeeze that in on Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. I might do that. There was was no I might. It was yes. But we live like that. That, well... If it fits in to my plan, then yeah, I will. So then the the huge question as Christians is this. What is it that God is habitually telling us to do that we are actually going, maybe one day? If this and this and this was to be different, then I would. What is it that he's constantly telling us to do that that, that we need to move on? Have you lived your life in such a way where it's been habitually yes and that you've needed to take steps of faith and risk on the maybe of God. And I've preached on that before. That it might be that God turns up. Have you lived a life like that? Because that's the adventure of the Christian dramatic plan. But if we live our life so safe and we've avoided risks and, and we've just relied on our own intuition, on our own skill, and our own control, and our own parenting that what happens is we tend to get cynical and fear-filled when God actually asks us to walk across the room and talk to that person about Jesus. Or to write that letter, or to be a certain type of person, or to sit down with somebody and go, actually, you know what? I can't be with you. Because we're on two different planes. That's what I mean, marriage. That we, that we don't follow through with what we know intuitively because the Holy Spirit is in us, what is right and what's wrong. We just say, well, maybe, maybe not. I think my plan might be better. And so Joshua constantly said yes. So here's my challenge. This week, this week, you could say yes to God and do something new and risky that will stretch and increase your faith and potentially change your life and somebody else's life around you. That if you actually spent time with the Lord in the morning, you get up first thing in the morning and look to see where the cloud is. And you go, okay, Lord, what is it you want me to do today? Increase my faith. Buckle up. Because he loves those prayers. And he'll present you with something. I know he will. And then you have a choice of yes or well, maybe three weeks next Tuesday if so-and-so, so-and-so and gave Archangel Gabriel and or will we actually do it? Because that is the adventure of Christianity and that's how churches change cities. When people in the church take their word, the word seriously and act upon it. Because the reality is, the great example we have is that cross. Is that Jesus said yes. It says in Hebrews that he said yes for the joy that was set before him. He endured the shame of the cross. He said yes. He said yes, Lord. Father, I will go. 
I will give my life. I will sacrifice myself. I'll go because I'm the only one who can do it. He lived a perfect life. And then he lived, he died the death that that I deserve and that you deserve. He said yes, because he was the one perfectly placed to do it. Friends, you and I are perfectly placed in the boundaries that God has given us to live out a life in such a way that only you can do that. Perfectly placed. So Jesus gave his life. And you know what I love about the picture of them coming out of their tents in the morning and them lifting their eyes and looking towards the cloud is we have such a beautiful scripture in the New Testament that says this, fix your eyes upon him. He's the author, he's the perfecter of faith. If you don't have that in your life, you need that in your life. Because the alternative is white-knuckling it all the way into whatever. And can I say the whatever goes on a long, long, long time, forever. The scripture says, forever. The whatever is actually unimaginable that carries on into eternity forever. That alone, and I don't want you to become a Christian because of fear of that, but it's a good impetus sometimes. And then we actually get to live life, heaven, eternity today for as long as the Lord wills. What an incredible life. The truth is, is that Jesus said yes to the cross for the joy set before him. And the plan may seem strange, but we have to trust him in it. So Lord, let's pray. Lord, what do you want me to do today? What steps of faith, Lord? Father, I pray that these words, your word, this story of Rahab and Jericho, Lord, would just resonate in our minds. And Lord, I pray it will not let us go. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would speak to us. Lord, for those in the room who don't know him, who don't know you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do the work, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work only you can do and initiate that faith. That, Lord, today, there would be celebration in heaven because somebody here in this place has submitted to you and confessed you as Lord. Lord, for the Christians in the room, for the parents, the grandparents, the friends, the brothers, the sisters, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that, Lord, that you would ignite this passion, this desire to live life through the lens of you being in control. That, Lord, that we could echo that beautiful hymn, It is well with my soul. That, Lord, that we wouldn't try and grasp and try and control all the time, but we would just live life with open hands. Knowing that you have a perfect, dramatically perfect plan that delights to use imperfect people. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.